You want to be that really bouncy ball hitting the ground. You don't want to be the iron rod hitting the ground and, and not going anywhere. And I think that's where highly strength trained, highly specialized individuals who take strength training too far and create some of these compressive strategies as well as these structural adaptations with thicker, stiffer tissues, they actually start to lose the ability to effectively utilize elastic energy because there is very little to no yield in the system. Let's get a little bit more specific about his knee. In order to appropriately absorb force with a knee, literally just to bend a knee, to land, to cut, anything like that, it needs to demonstrate internal rotation. That's what you need in order to flex. That's what you need in order to um, change levels at that joint specifically. Because of the amount of stiffness that he was generating and because of the shape change within his pelvis, that is now limited on him from the get-go. That was Justin Moore and Mike Camperini. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights, they're light in nature, 100-200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body in ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next-level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. So often, a question that comes up in the world of sports performance, and especially given that the majority of sports performance programs really prioritize a weightlifting one or at maxes as a key variable that athletes are improving, but is really the value of heavy weightlifting and the effects of heavy weightlifting over time. You're going to have a lot of camps that really prioritize and value the improvements of 1RMs and lifting heavy and hard. And at the same time, you have a fair number of high-level sports performance coaches, some of whom are very adamant against heavy weightlifting and heavy barbell training for athletics, citing limitations in elasticity, range of motion, amongst other things. As with so many things, the answer is often as to whether to do or not to do is often fairly individualistic and often lies somewhere in the middle based off the athlete standing in front of you. What do they need? What's their presentation? What's their history? 
And the more we can understand the big picture with all this stuff and all the nuances and, and little variables that go into what happens when we dump a particular stimulus in the system, uh, what is going to happen to the athlete? So our guests today are Justin Moore and Michael Camperini. Justin Moore has been a popular guest on this podcast many times in the past and has discussed advanced biomechanical principles in regards to things like breathing, positioning and strength training, biomechanics of the big lifts, and a whole lot more. I've learned a lot from him, and I'm really happy to have him back. Uh, He is the professional development manager and a master instructor at Parabolic Performance and Rehab. Michael Camperini, or Campo, is a sports physical therapist in Phoenix, Arizona. He has previously worked with athletes of all levels and ages with experience as a strength coach at Parabolic, and Campo has completed internships with very high-level coaches and therapists at places such as Resilient Physical Therapy and IFAST, and he's completed a clinical rotation with Bill Hartman. So for this show, uh, we're going to chat a little bit about Justin's case study. So a case study of Justin Moore and his history of knee injuries and some of the negative things that happened to him over the years uh, from a physiological and a structural standpoint from tons of heavy lifting with a strain-based strategy. And this is such an awesome case study because Justin and Campo get into the nitty-gritty of what specific key performance indicators are we looking at when we are saying, hey, this athlete, yes, has been lifting too much, too much compression, too much strain. And then we get into specific strategies on how they worked with Justin to help him overcome that and to get to doing the things that he wanted to do, specifically in this case, playing flag football at a high level. This podcast has so many implications for really anytime you're looking at that question of, is this athlete lifting too heavy, too hard, and too often, and what's happening with that over time? It's a topic I'm really passionate about, and these guys do an awesome job of just bringing so many angles to the table and opening up our eyes in new directions so we can serve our athletes to a higher level. Before we get started, again, this podcast is brought to you by SimplyFaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, as well as Lost Empire Herbs, and you can grab 15% off your Lost Empire Herbs order by heading to LostEmpireHerbs.com slash JustFly. All right, let's get on to the show. All right, so thanks for being on the show, guys. Um, Justin, let's kick this off. Uh, you had an awesome uh, Facebook or social media post describing this, but describe your um, the injury that you had about a year ago and some of the factors that led up to that and then kind of the story that led you guys to working together. Yeah, so Joel, thanks again for having me back on. The post that I made, we got to kind of take a couple steps back before that um, because I have a kind of a lengthy history with that knee that led me to that point. And so I tore my ACL three times in three years playing college football. The first one was a, a contact injury, but looking back on it and kind of knowing what we know now, it's not all that surprising that it was my right ACL and it, it happened three consecutive times. I ended up going back and was able to play, was able to finish my, my, my football career there. But afterwards, you know, I wanted to continue to lift. I got really passionate about Olympic lifting. And so I was training hard and, and doing heavy lifting for years. And then all of a sudden I had a staph infection pop up in, my, in that same knee a couple of years later. Um, and so that was a 10-day hospital stay. That was two knee surgeries to clean it out. So that was, you know, up to five surgeries by 2014 on that knee. And so coming out of school, you know, I was, I was done with sports. I just wanted to lift. I, want, I was becoming a strength coach and really finding my passion there. But I had this kind of underlying issue that was always there. Like I always had right knee pain. Um, it was always a little bit you know, uncomfortable, but I was able to work through it and, and continue to lift and do what I wanted. A couple of years later, decided, you know, 
through, uh, you know, talking to my girlfriend, Monica, that we were going to do a a half marathon together for fun. And, you know, I wanted to be supportive in some ways because, you know, she enjoyed running and and I wanted to get her, you know, back into training. Um, So I was like, you know, I'll do it with you. So, you know, I'm training for this half marathon. And before you know it, like I'm more invested in training for it than she is. Because, of course, I didn't want to do anything and, you know, unprepared. So I was running very hard. But at the same time, and I think we'll get to this at some point, you know, I wasn't giving up the lifting end. So I was still lifting really hard in addition to prepping for a half marathon. Um, and not only with my injury history, but also with with me as an individual and, and my biases, um, running a half marathon is not the best idea. It's just not really what I'm built for and not really what I'm particularly good at. But, you know, it was something that I enjoyed doing. and It was a really fun experience. The day before that half marathon, uh, I was out for kind of like a shakeout run just to to kind of last prep. And afterwards, before we headed into Philadelphia, where the the run was, I started feeling like a catching sensation in my knee. And it was like probably the worst discomfort I've had since my last surgery. I would feel like this lock and then a release within the knee that that I had never felt before. It It was very different. It swelled up that night. It didn't feel good at all. Um, I ended up running through it the next day and and finished the half marathon, but I knew something was wrong. And so from that point forward, I had these, these catching symptoms, this feeling of like a locked knee to the point where one time it actually happened at work while I was moving around. And in doing so, I had to actually go to the ground. Like I had to just go sit down and lay down and move my tibia around until my knee literally was able to bend again and I could walk again. So that was like very scary, unnerving situation that I had never felt before. Um, And that's kind of where it began. And so, you know, over the next year, things improved, you know, I was able to get myself back to to training and doing what I wanted to do. And then a friend of mine wanted to do an adventure race after that. So I dove into that again. And that's another like long endurance event. And so, you know, that was another stressor with a lot of impacts with a lot of running and hiking. Um, If we look at this from like a perspective of and, and looking at moxie and energetics, like I was basically just occluding blood flow with every step I took during these very long training sessions, which is awesome. Um, and I you know, would wonder why I couldn't feel my legs afterwards. And, uh, and then I would still try to lift in addition to that. So that was, you know, another piece of the puzzle. And after that race, the same type of thing started to happen. I started to get these catching symptoms again. I started getting this knee pain, a little bit of inflammation. Um, and that was a problem. But again, I continued on my track. I was going to lift heavy, you know, run hard and, and train hard all the time until finally last year was was really the, the end of it for me. Um, and that's where I was demonstrating a skip for a client of mine during a training session, young kid, very simple skipping progression as we were getting him back to, to running. And as I hit the ground with my right leg, like I felt this, this, this kind of pop, this catch, this like feeling internally of something truly like giving way that I hadn't felt since I performed my ACL. And that night it it swelled up like tremendously. I couldn't walk. I was limping around the gym, trying to play it off during training session with this client. Um, But that moment right there, just kind of like, I can't even do a skip anymore with confidence that I'm going to be able to demonstrate this drill for a client and not hurt myself or not be in tremendous pain or not have my knee give out on me and catch and lock. Um, and so that was a really big kind of moment where it was like, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to feel this way anymore. It's not worth training hard all the time in this specific way to lose all semblance of athleticism and be, and, and the freedom of movement and to be able to just 
demonstrate a sprint drill for a client and feel good about that. And so, you know, I was kind of hit this year by quarantine like everybody else. And in doing so, like I didn't have access to the heavy equipment. I didn't have access to the gym. And so my training immediately had to change. So I was working with my, you know, one of my football clients all summer um, outside of the gym space. And that forced me into a place where I started getting back to doing some more athletic things. Um, it forced me into a place where I started training a little differently. I couldn't use heavy bilateral compressive lifting all the time because I didn't have access to that. Um, and so that sort of started me on this track of training a little bit differently and, and thinking a little bit differently and revisiting some concepts um, that I'd maybe like passed aside for a long time. And in doing so, like I was able to get back to sprinting, changing directions, moving well, uh, relatively pain-free, which was, was awesome. And, and it was a great experience. Um, and so at the end of that, or towards the end of that, that period, um, I said to a friend of mine, like, Hey, we should, you know, join a flag football league. Like we're doing all this athletic stuff. We might as well go have some fun with it and compete a little bit. And it was more joking. Like I didn't actually think he was going to do it. And the next day he had us signed up for like a very, a fairly serious flag football league uh, based out of Staten Island that plays in, in central New Jersey. Um, and so I was like, okay, like, guess we got to do this. And at that time, my thought process was, okay, you know, I'm feeling better. I'm moving better. I, I can actually get back to doing some of the things I want to do, but I know that I haven't regained the range of motion or recaptured the capabilities that I need to, to continue to stay healthy for the long haul. Um, and so I also knew that, you know, based on my own biases, if I write my own programming, I'm going to do the things that I want to do. I'm going to do the things that I enjoy. I'm always going to default back to the things that I've always done because I've written my own programming for years now without break. Um, and so I thought it was the right time to, to have a coach and to outsource my programming and to ask somebody who I know knows more on this subject than I do and who's able to come at it from a more unbiased perspective and say like, hey, this is, this is what you actually need to do if you want to accomplish the goals that you say you want to accomplish as opposed to, um, you know, my, my tendency, which is, you know, to try to do a little bit of everything, which leads to a lot of interference. And so that's where I just, uh, you know, Campo to, to come in and take over my programming. Um, and so we've been working together for a couple months now and, and doing some really cool things. I've been able to play, you know, flag football every week, pain-free, feel really good, playing, uh, playing well and cutting and, and feeling more athletic than I have since, you know, my college football days, which is uh, a really cool feeling to be able to move freely and do those things again without fear. And I think that's the biggest thing is like, I got to a point where I was afraid of moving because I didn't know what it was, what was going to happen. And that, that was a crappy feeling. So Justin, Oh, oh. go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Cap. I was just going to say, um, Oh yeah, go, go ahead. Don't let me interrupt you. So Justin, I was going to say, we got to find you some more sedentary activities for you to really dig your teeth into, man. We've got to get you like collecting stamps or knitting or, like if I if I enter you into like the world championships for like the Rubik's cube, will you put all your investments into that or what? Probably not, but I think that's more of a Monica thing. She loves puzzles, so right. be, um. well, I'll convince her to convince you to get into it. But like, Jit, so let me, Justin, let me even ask you this as far as the timeline. Um, when you did, because I think you've talked to me a decent amount about when you were demonstrating that skip, and that really resonated with you as far as like oh, crap, I need to take care of this kind of thing. Um, around what time did quarantine kick in when that occurred? Um, so the skip, the skip would have been, 
I want to say it was in like December before quarantine. December. Okay. So it was it was before like three months. Yeah, a few months. Okay. Um, and that was that <laughs> was a big turning point. And then a few months later, obviously, we kind of got locked down. Because um, I honestly don't think we would have had the success we've had with you as far as making the changes we've made if it wasn't for quarantine taking your needle and spoon away from you. So no, um, I think I think you're right. And that was that was really a, a big portion of it because you know, even though coming coming to you and starting with programming, like there were still a ton of restriction, right? And we we all we can talk about all of my presentation. Um, but there's no question that that I was moving better coming into it and sure. less compression than back in, in winter and fall of that year. I mean, just looking at my training at the time, like I was doing all of the heavy bilateral lifting you could do. And then on my off days, I was prepping for endurance events. And when I wasn't prepping for endurance events, I was doing like higher intensity, um, like interval type stuff. Right. And it was just too much from all the different angles. So um, having to do the the quarantine type training and then also doing the things that I was having Steve do um, as, an athlete, sure. as an athlete, like that kind of forced <laughs> have some skin in the game and also to appreciate like you know recovery rest and also the development of some of these multi-directional qualities because right. he too is one of those extremely compressed individuals who you know is is very restricted in movement and so we were working on that together um and that was kind of a cool experience yeah and i, I think it was also a good timing just because and you know i'm guilty of this just as much as the next person i think it's something that's really changed with me as far as like my um, expectations as far as time dedicated to some of the movement stuff. Like, I think the movement stuff can be exciting because you can make changes fast for some people, for other people, it's a little bit more of a time commitment based on the kind of adaptations that you need to create. If you're trying to improve some of the movement qualities, you taking a step away from, you know, for, you know, for, for reference, um, I don't know how many people followed Justin, uh, what, two or three years ago when you were repping out 450 on the trap bar for 10 sets of 10. It's like, okay, let's stop doing that for like four months, five months, see what we can get to and see if we're in a better place to to create some of the changes that we're trying to create. And so I think that was a, a massive um, benefit to what we were trying to do with you. So Yeah, no, and I don't, I don't want to jack it all. But to your point, I think this is valuable for a lot of people out training hard all the time who are doing those things who maybe have like a, you know, a, a meathead kind of mentality as I did. It's like, you know, those those elements, those compressive training strategies, those things that you do over years to build the strength, to build the muscle, um, those lead to structural changes and certain biases that you also need to give time in order to create any right. sort of adaptation in the other direction because, you know, all of that force and, and all of that adaptation related to those forces and those compressive strategies are going to create significant changes over a period of time. And it's not going to all flip the switch and recapture all this motion in, you know, a couple sets of a uh, breathing activity. So there's a certain element of time that needs to be respected. I think this has really given me an appreciation for that, which is, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the the theme of this conversation and of your post and I don't I don't want this call to turn into like let's all grab our pitchforks and torches and like 
banish trap bar deadlifts and heavy sumo deadlifts and squatting to the to the ether just because there's a place for it. All we're really talking about is conflicting adaptations. The adaptations that Justin needed to play flag football, one, safely, and two, effectively, aren't going to be the same as the adaptations that you need to, you know, trap or deadlift your face off effectively. And that's really what sums up the entire case and conversation with, uh, with Justin. And we can, we can get into specifics as far as those adaptations if we want, so... Yeah, I'd like to get into a few specifics of it. Um, well, I will make one quick comment too with the quarantine. And it wasn't just, I think, in the rehab space or the movement space, but a lot of coaches were like, you said, Campo, like they're just forced to get away from barbells for a while. And sure. people would be posting like, hey, here's what happened to my vertical jump and my reactive strength, like my hopping tests and four jumps. And invariably, especially the reactive strength was going through the roof for some of these coaches and verticals were going up and just doing something else um, that wasn't heavy force-based or compressive lifting. Um, I'll say this real quick before I move it, because I do want to get on to specifics here, Mm -hmm. is just what you said uh, I think is interesting, which is, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, and it's kind of like athletes, just athletes in general, once you start lifting, it's like like a bug. You always want to improve. You always want to beat your, you know, whatever you're at, but... Like you said, you do that long enough and eventually you're going to have structural changes that accompany that barbell training. And so I'll ask this to you because I've thought about this myself is how now that you've gone through that in your own training of athletes, do you would you now like just give them dedicated time? I mean, I guess this is case by case, right? Is it causing a structural adaptation yet? But as a general principle, just giving athletes time away from compressive work, almost just as a rule of thumb, not even necessarily individual, but like, hey. We've been lifting for X amount of time. Let's just take some time off to make sure we don't get into these structural changes that might prevent you. Or what's what are you guys thought on that? Just alternating time lifting, alternating time without just as a general rule of strategy, maybe not even being too specific about it. I think it's it's important to always treat everything as that kind of N equals one case study. And that's why we establish uh, like key performance indicators to track over time, right? So it's not, it's not, you know, okay, we're going to periodize things in, in this specific way. And then this few months, we're going to do this and then have to take it away. It's a matter of, um, you know, when we look at an individual's kind of situation, we say, thank you. When we look at an individual situation, we say, hey, like, what does this person need to reach their goals, right? Where is our end game? And then we establish certain things that we need to track and we don't want to lose. So maybe it's range of motion, right? Maybe it's some sort of table test or uh, we look at the squat a lot because it's an easy test that we can kind of check back in on, especially in my in my realm where I'm, I'm a coach, right? So I don't want to keep putting people back on the table all the time, but I do, need, I do need to respect that training certain elements has secondary consequences, right? That might take away range of motion that might talk, uh, take some of these you know, structural adaptations to a place that I don't want them to go. And so we constantly check back in with, okay, what are the performance metrics that tell us we're moving in the direction we want to go from a performance perspective? And then also, what are some of the elements that we can tr- uh, track as like a proxy for health? And then how can we make sure that we don't let those go outside of the bandwidth that is acceptable to us, right? So, so uh, one of my clients, a baseball player, is a perfect example of this. Um, Campo have been, you know, going back and forth about him a little bit as well. So he's a young kid, right? And and he's a very, very dedicated baseball player, loves the sport, literally will practice 
three to four hours a day on his own. Like no one is making him do that. Um, and so he has some pretty significant movement restrictions from a very young age and some pretty significant biases in, in his movement. Um, but he's a forceful, powerful athlete who is also actually like a very technically sound baseball player. So the key is like he wants to run a faster 60. He wants to hit the ball harder and throw the ball harder so he can go play college baseball. Well, that's great. But I got to make sure that in the process of doing that, we are able to put him in the positions where, A, he can maximize the movement that he needs in order to hit the baseball well, because that's not all just about pure force production, right? He needs to be able to express certain positions and certain velocity characteristics that maybe he can't access right now. So that's important. But at the same time, we got to keep him healthy because he's only 15 years old, right? And so we have to keep him in the game long enough for him to actually realize his potential as an athlete. So while I'm training him, to improve his 60. We're working on sprint mechanics. We're working on sprinting. We're doing plyometrics, all the things we would normally do. Um, and while we're training rotational power and all of those elements, I'm also tracking his squat. I'm tracking his table test and I'm making sure that we're either recapturing motion or we're not losing what we've gained so that over time, as we drive these, these performance-based adaptations, we're not just taking away something that he needs for health or even rotational performance as a baseball player. Yeah. And going, going off of that, I think it's even um, interesting with these cases too, because, you know, talking about Justin's KPIs that we've been working with and even this kid, the baseball player, um, the demonstration and based on their case, I'll, I'll preface this with based on their case, because that's always um, paramount in your, in uh, how you have to, do things right so based on both of their cases as you're improving the range of motion you're potentially improving their performance as well for a number of different reasons so the the strategy that they're utilizing can change the stiffness and the quality of the soft tissues that changes how you're absorbing and utilizing the energy through athletic movement and then as well as improving the the motion capabilities for the activities that they're trying to participate in. So in Justin's case, it's change of direction, um, sprinting, things of that nature. And then for this kid, it's the same thing, but with the added um, emphasis on rotation or baseball, so hitting, throwing, whatever, um, enabling you to have enough motion to effectively transfer all of that energy through your entire body is paramount to any, any athletic endeavor. That could be powerlifting, that could be Olympic weightlifting, that could be uh, baseball, um, that could be change of direction. It's just going to change specifically to that activity. Um, how, how you're transferring that energy, the timing necessary for transferring that energy, and that's all going to be specific to how you're training for it. So you know, there's a stretch shortening cycle in Olympic weightlifting and in powerlifting. It's just going to be different compared to sprinting or throwing a baseball. And how you train for that will prep you for that. So the, it's, a, it's a very interesting idea that I've kind of been coming to terms with insofar as like, you know, the said principle is always going to reign supreme. And I don't think I was at least appreciating that enough, you know, a year ago where there's no such thing as a general adaptation. There's no such thing as a, a true GPP phase. There's just specific adaptations that can be applied 
more readily to a wider range of activities. So if I have um, someone who's deadlifting and squatting all the time, there's specific adaptations to those activities that could potentially be detrimental to certain activities. And there could be uh, adaptations that could be advantageous, just depending on who they are. So let's take someone who, a good example of this would be like, uh, you know, a Bambi kid, like they squat and it kind of looks like a melted candle, can't really generate that much stiffness. And they're trying to play athletic endeavors that require them to create more stiffness to absorb energy within their soft tissue more effectively. Something like uh, trap bar deadlifts or heavier lifting that require them to generate that stiffness would be more advantageous for their their sport. Because, again, that's specific to them and what they're trying to achieve and what they can achieve. Someone like Justin, who has no issue creating the stiffness whatsoever, if you ever measure his hips or at least have the luxury of doing some range of motion testing on him, you'll you'll find that out pretty quickly as soon as you put your leg in your hand. Um, with, you know, he has no issue of creating that stiffness. Does he need more of that trap bar deadlifting? If he needs less of that stiffness to optimize how he's using using his stretch shortening cycle within change of direction or within sprinting, probably not. So that's what I mean as far as like, you know, I don't want to put uh, pitchforks and torches to strength and conditioning and weightlifting heavy because, like I said, it's just a matter of identifying the adaptations specific to those activities and do they match up with what that person needs at that time. Justin, hell no. He got he got plenty of that with you know his entire training history. So I started my career in strength and conditioning, having a very manufactured approach to training. You're gonna do this many sets and reps of this exercise, you're gonna do it like this, you're gonna do this movement prep but first and everything with that. And over eight years of time as a full-time strength coach, I slowly shifted into a more athlete-centered organic approach. Uh, where athletes had more options on how to do things. They could express themselves. They could move with flow. We did more gymnastics. We did more games. We did more organic learning. I will never turn back on that. Along the same lines, I've gotten into a more organic approach of supplementation, moving away from caffeine-heavy pre-workouts into herbs such as shilajit, which you may have heard mentioned by guests on this show in the past as being awesome for strength and vitality. That's why I'm proud to partner with two-time previous guest on this show, Logan Christopher and his company, Lost Empire Herbs. If you want to check out some of the herbs that have led me into becoming a stronger and more vital human being, ones that I use personally, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can get 15% off your order there, as well as get a 365-day money-back guarantee. Again, to get 15% off your order with Lost Empire Herbs and see my top recommended herbs that I use personally, Head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. All right, let's get on back to the show. I'd like to jump in real quick here because I'd like to yep. get specific here. Um, yeah, So sure. one of the things that actually I did have a couple follow-up questions and hopefully we can get to those as we go along. But Justin, you mentioned as long as the, the KPIs don't change. You know, we can we can keep lifting, keep adding in compressive forces as long as we aren't, we're, we're checking things and nothing, you know, deleterious to performance is happening. And range of motion. And I think the common thing that coaches have probably said for decades and very generalized is we'll just, you know, keep your mobility exercises, you know, make sure you stretch and lift, da, 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 whatever, you know. 
So I think that's not necessarily in, in just that umbrella of very general thought. That's nothing new. But I know that you guys have a different, I mean, and, and then just as we keep moving forward, it's more than just, just stretching. There's things that have to do with the structure of the body, how that's changing. So can you guys tell me a little bit about, let's just maybe keep it to the uh, example of um, playing flag football, sprinting, changing direction, maybe jumping a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. What KPIs in terms of range of motion are you guys looking at from in terms of table tests, anything dynamic? And then what are some intervention strategies? So, so let, let's go all the way back and start with um, how Justin was presenting. And that'll, that'll be more advantageous to this kind of conversation just because it'll give us more specific characteristics of how he was presenting, why we selected the KPIs for him that were useful, and then how we were tracking those over time based on, based on the interventions that we were, uh, we were trying to create or utilize with him. So and I'll, I'll go all the way back to say that, you know, Justin and I worked together for a year, oh God, back in 2016, something like that. I used to work at Parabolic as a strength coach. Um, so I've had the luxury, I will, I will say the luxury of um, both measuring Justin, working with Justin, training with Justin, you know, me and him would do like late night lifts all the time back in the day. Um, so I have a decent understanding of, who we, you know, we're not coming into this cold, right? So um, going all the way back to when I used to work with him, we used to try and get range of motion back at his, in his hips just because, yeah, we were still worried about um, his knees and how he was feeling and things like that. And so anytime he'd be laying on the table and you'd try to even bring him into hip flexion on both sides, right, greater than left, he'd try and push you away as soon as you would lift his leg up and there's just a general like trying to move through molasses kind of uh, range of motion feel as you would be moving his leg around so as i would try and bring his leg up into hip flexion i'd get that molasses feel i'd get pushed all the way out to the side and then if i really tried to lean into it and push it his knee back up towards his nose uh he'd get pretty much like a like a positive fader response so um Flexion adduction IR, pretty much you get like a, an, an FAI impingement onto the medial aspect of the acetabulum. Um, so again, that's already indicative of the kind of strategy and the kind of behavior his body is presenting with. So the, the deviation that he demonstrated with uh, very quickly into his hip flexion measurement, so probably around like, you know, if memory serves correctly back in the day, it was right around like the 60 degree or 70 degree mark of hip flexion. He'd be pushing me out that much. It was representative. And I didn't know this at the time. I was still just trying to you know, move his hips around or whatever. It was more representative of how much his acetabulum was deviating out more into like a retroverted position. So it was facing laterally. It was facing more posterior. And the femur was just following that train or that track. Uh, in order for movement and then the the overall uh, end feel as far as like how stiff his his tissue was was representative of that same strategy so in order to to create the change within his pelvis it it's it's a bony adaptation that that is required of that along with you know i'm sure genetically and he's more predisposed to having that kind of structure as well but the 
the stiffness and the amount of muscle activity needed to generate that kind of bony adaptation is is high. Let's just say that it, it that's the kind of adaptation that needs to occur or that the kind of behavior that needs to occur at the very like max effort moment of any stretch shortening cycle. So that'd be like the amount of force needed for like that amortization amortization phase or the transition phase where you can really take advantage of the elastic response, right? He was demonstrating that all the time as far as how much stiffness he had. So it's that's what I mean where like the the range of motion as well as the performance thing is is starting to merge just because okay, how he's behaving and creating these motion deficits is also influencing how he's absorbing energy or how he can potentially absorb energy within his elastic tissue. And it's being, uh, it's being, what's the right word for it? Specialized, I guess, for specific activities. So that amount of stiffness is necessary for trap bar deadlifts. So think, think of Justin used to do uh, like 450 for as many reps of 450 pounds on a trap bar deadlift as he could and he would be filling himself on instagram so he'd be trying to show off obviously and so um imagine like you are so jacked up and you're trying to just brush a trap bar deadlift not even just lift it off the ground but like at the top position like just feel like you have it like you're squeezing every single ounce of your body from toes all the way to to, to hands that's the kind of strategy he was de- generating and training himself to generate. And that's what we were measuring on the table. And that's why he needed quarantine to stop doing that for a long time. So we didn't have to continue to battle that the entire time. So even someone who's doing trap bar deadlifts at maybe a lesser intensity might not even have the same uh, presentation just because of even how like the the emotional vigor or intensity that they're going into it and the amount of compression and, and stiffness they're trying to generate during that lift. So that's a huge difference with how he was presented. So you have all this compression on his body, both on the backside and the front side, that's generating all this stiffness and changing how his soft tissue is going to respond to loading and then changing the structure of his actual skeleton pelvis being a good example. So it's retroverting his acetabulum. It's, it's turning him out. It's deviating them outward. So that's pretty much where his femurs contract. So that obviously trickles down into his lower extremity. So now he has a, a greater bias of external rotation all the way down because of the, the, the position of his acetabulum. So let's, let's get a little bit more specific about his knee. In order to appropriately absorb force uh, with a knee, literally just to bend a knee, to land, to cut, anything like that. It needs to demonstrate internal rotation. That's what you need in order to flex. That's what you need in order to um, change levels at that joint specifically. Because of the amount of stiffness that he was generating and because of the shape change within his pelvis, that is now limited on him from the get-go. And then you take some asymmetries where he was actually getting shoved from the left and forward onto the right side. So now his center of gravity is moving forward and on the right over his right foot. So now because of that, you need a little bit of internal rotation to generate force into the ground to just stay upright. 
So now you have internal rotation happening a little bit more at his at his foot, so he's flattening his arch. But then you have external rotation turning him out on the right, and then you have his center of gravity shifting to the right. What you have now is anytime you're trying to cut or plant on that right foot is a knee that can absorb energy and it can internally rotate. Center of gravity that's pushing you forward and onto the right, but a foot that's trying to stay underneath your body. And then a bias of external rotation on the right side as well. It's kind of this nice little recipe for valgus loading at high velocities in a crappy position. And we get knee issues, whatever it might be, meniscus, ACL, repetitively over and over and over again. So again, part part of what we're trying to do with Justin is pretty much do the exact opposite of how he was presenting in those circumstances. Now, I'll take a pause so you guys can chime in there. I was going for a while, so I'll go for it. Maybe I can put together my quick summary of it and just to, so I can just put the checklist and then Justin, you can chat about it a little bit, but I basically... And this is something I've seen, as you mentioned, Campo, that uh, Justin, it's not just that you're lifting heavy, it's kind of how you're doing it. Because I've seen this in a lot of very good movers in my experience in working with, especially like elite level swimmers and tennis players and people who have a little more grace and fluidity is they almost don't want to, not not a cut, not a jab there, but like they almost don't want to put that extra 10 or 20 pounds on the bar because something in their subconscious knows that. And I almost relate to what you were saying is there, there's going to be too much system stiffness, like something negative is going to happen if I put that extra 10 or 20 pounds on the bar just Mm -hmm. to get this weight. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like they just get it. And so that like system wide stiffness, uh, that was because of his strategy, not, not necessarily the weight because of his strategy, I guess, in lifting it created an extra rotation bias and it jammed the head of the femur, the acetabulum, like upwards and backwards, you were saying that cascaded that. So, so it'd go, so. If I, you're not doing video well, clips. Imagine, um, imagine an acetabulum. So you're like, I don't know, I'm plastered to the side of an acetabulum and I'm facing out from it. And so if I just turn it out relative to the rest of the body, so I'm facing more laterally and backwards relative to the rest of the body, that's the direction that his acetabulum was going. And then his, so his pelvis as a whole was moving forward and to the right a little bit more. And then he had that that uh, change in shape of his pelvis and change in orientation of acetabulum on both sides. The asymmetry of forward and to the right was probably leading to a little bit more right knee issue or greater amount of right knee issues than left knee issues. So, uh, cool. Very very quick question and comment before we move mm-hmm. on is is I you mentioned stiffness as the strategy mm-hmm. and I just think it's interesting because we throw around the word stiffness a lot. Oh, you're sure. you're sprinting, hit with a stiff foot, hit with a you're jumping, be mm-hmm. stiff. But, you know, it just people tend to use that word for a lot of skills and you sure. know, just something you were mentioning is it's almost he was so stiff in lifting that it wasn't being and I know we have the rotation and you have to rotate. But can you guys go into that a little bit on where and there's that specificity and and how that changes as per need of what you're doing? So I love this topic because, well, especially in the PT world, and I think in like general and traditional strength SNC world, I uh, I won't speak for everyone. This is a very general uh, point of view. I think there's a, a very poor understanding of the stretch shortening cycle and how it works. So it's an what essentially is occurring is that you need increased muscle um, activity 
to generate musculature stiffness to match the stiffness of the, the soft tissue. So it, what you're trying to create is shortening of the muscle, so generating activity, generating stiffness to the point that you can now elongate and change the shape and deform the soft tissues in which it attaches into. So that's tendon and that's bone. And so you need muscular stiffness to elongate that tissue and to allow energy to be absorbed within that tissue effectively. Okay? And all athletes are really trying to do is titrate that stiffness within the musculature to take advantage of the elastic energy that is absorbed within that soft tissue. And, that, and that's why it is highly specific to what kind of activity you're trying to do, as well as specific to who you are as a person. So for deadlifts, for powerlifting, it's going to be a higher rate of stiffness or a higher amount of stiffness within the musculature, just based on the load and the speed in which you're trying to move. And then with something like sprinting or throwing, compared to powerlifting, it's going to be a lesser degree of stiffness and applied at a different rate of loading to fully take advantage of that elastic response. And that's going to be, again, it's like, how much do you weigh? It comes down to even those characteristics as well as the direction of the force, the amount of stiffness that the muscle, that the muscle needs to generate within that activity as well. Like it, it, it's all those different specifics, which again, you come back to the N equals one. It's like, that is important, man. So, I don't know. Justin, go with that. Yeah, what do you think about that, Justin? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's so, – so based on the conversation, I think structure and, and predisposition, which is in some ways going to be genetically determined, also is going to play a role there. So we've talked a lot about my strategy for lifting, right? Well, part of that is that my shape and my bias makes me pretty good at creating extremely high levels of compression, right? Creating a lot of stiffness, right? So when I'm lifting that barbell – I'm kind of in my element, right? I feel like I can create as much tension as possible and push through the ground and nothing is going to be able to, to break me because I can create that incredibly high level of compression and also that stiffness to move heavy loads at slow speeds, right? So that's just something that I've always been good at. And that's probably why I ended up playing offensive line. Like I'm an athletic guy, fast, but people can't turn me very effectively, right? They can't get my hands on and then move me well. I'm very good at when somebody gets their hands on, I get my hands on them. I'm not going to be the one who bends or moves, right? Which, again, part of that is genetics, part of that is structure, but then part of that is I specialized in that position and in that sport. So I was very good at creating maximal tension and, and grinding against uh, you know high forces at slow speeds. So I carried that through to my lifting, and then that's kind of what I was good at, and that's what my body specifically adapts to. So you get tissue changes, and now onto the concept of stiffness, right? You're going to get all of the tissues of the body absorbing and, and uh, dealing with the forces going through it, right? And so if you are chronically creating these incredibly high forces at slow speeds, you're subjecting all of the tissues, whether it's muscle, epineurosis, whether it's tendon, ligament, bone, fascia, all of these tissues are subjected to the forces. And so they adapt over time, right? And so everything that the tissue is made of becomes stiffer. It becomes thicker. 
it becomes harder to deform because it's dealing with these high forces and the body in its infinite wisdom is adapting to that stress, right? And so now it takes more force. It takes more to create the deformation in the tissue, right? So that's really what Camp was talking about when he talks about stiffness. It's like all of the tissues, including the bone and everything around it is becoming stiffer, it's becoming thicker, right? It's harder to deform because it's adapted to those heavy loads. And so now you can't create this yielding strategy or you can't adopt this yielding strategy that's necessary for multi-directional speed skills, for turning, right, for rotation, for cutting. And so that's where some of these problems come in because you have to find a yielding strategy somewhere, right? You have to find this giveaway somewhere and you have to find internal rotation somewhere in order to move through space and in order to apply force to the ground. The question is, how are you doing that and where are you doing that? And so where I was doing that, I was getting that through literally my knee, right? Like I was getting internal rotation through my knee because I didn't have it at the pelvis, because I didn't have it anywhere else, right? And so if you're putting this stress through that tissue and you're unable to capture this yielding strategy, now you're in a situation where something else might give way, right? And maybe that was the ACL, maybe that was the meniscus. Whatever it is, that's maybe where the yield took place or where the stiffness was so great that now you, you had a situation where that gives way before anything else. So I think one of the important things that I learned this year was, you know, understanding viscoelastic tissue to a greater degree, right? And understanding how rate of loading and magnitude of loading affects the response of viscoelastic tissue. And to Campo's point about the stretch shortening cycle, um, yeah, I think understanding that when you hit the ground during whether it's a, a sprint or a change of direction, right, you are immediately creating this overcoming strategy to push back into the ground as soon as you, you hit the ground, right? So anteriorly, especially in the pelvic diaphragm, you have to be able to overcome to push up against gravity. And so immediately, what allows athletes to, to utilize the stretch shortening cycle effectively is this combination of an effective yield, but then the ability to overcome quickly so that you don't give way too much. So really fast, elastic athletes have this overcoming strategy where the muscle, the muscle itself, right, is actually shortening. It's actually creating this, 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 this overcoming action, which transfers the force to the connective tissue. Right. And if the muscle is able to be stiffer than the connective tissue, then the connective tissue yields, it deforms and it returns elastic energy very efficiently. Right. With very little energy expenditure. And it happens a lot faster. This allows us to produce fast or high forces at high velocity. Right. And that's the nature of the stretch shortening cycle. And if you look at the research on this, it's, it's really cool. You see that the myofibrils are going to actually be in a shortening position during what we would consider the eccentric phase of movement and the, the connective tissue is going to yield. Well, here's the problem. If you create a situation where your connective tissue is so stiff, right, that it can't even deform, right? It can't even capture this yield during that, that breaking phase of a cut or that uh, eccentric phase of a ground contact. Now you're going to have an issue where you're, you're so stiff, you're like an iron rod hitting the ground. There's no yield. There's no give way. There's no effective storage of elastic energy. And so that's where, you know, for me, that's a KPI for change of direction performance and, and acceleration and, and max velocity performance. We absolutely need stiffness at the right time 
in the right amounts in order to effectively use the stretch shorting cycle. But if you don't have a yielding strategy, if you can't capture that yielding strategy through the, the system, through the connective tissue, then you don't get an optimal storage and release of elastic energy. And again, it's like you want to be that really bouncy ball hitting the ground. You don't want to be the iron rod hitting the ground and, and not going anywhere. And I think that's where highly strength trained, highly specialized individuals who take strength training too far and create some of these compressive strategies as well as these structural adaptations with thicker, stiffer tissues, they actually start to lose the ability to effectively utilize elastic energy because there is very little to no yield in the system. And so let me let me jump into that to go off that to help kind of brush the dust off of some of the, some of these concepts where um, I was alluding to it a little bit before where, you know, athletes are just trying to titrate the elastic response, right? So Justin was hitting it on it in his, his spiel right there where as the muscle becomes concentrically oriented, it transitions more and more of that loading to that tendon, right? And so if I start from an already greater concentric orientation or greater activity from that muscle, it loads that tendon faster and it'll reduce the amount that it can actually deform. And the deformation is the yielding action, which we'll talk. The overcoming action is when that energy now becomes utilized for whatever activity you're trying to, to participate in. The, 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 I guess, position would be a good word. Um, as far as the shortening of that muscle prior to that activity helps you is an indicator as far as how much that tendon is going to yield and how quickly you are loading that uh, soft tissue and then how quickly you're then be, uh, utilizing it. So let, let's take Justin's uh, vert jump as a really good example. Cannot get depth to save his life, cannot uh, absorb energy very effectively. So as he hits the bottom of his counter movement, kind of looks like you just hit a rock. And so if, the, if this is a soft tissue, if it's only able to elongate maybe like three or four inches, he was only able to elongate another two inches because of how stiff his musculature always already was and already pulling on that rubber band a little bit more. So it wasn't effectively taking advantage of the full excursion of that soft tissue and then utilizing it for any kind of, uh, any kind of activity other than I need to get this trap bar deadlift off the ground. <laughs> if I, if I want to get a trap bar deadlift off the ground, I will pre pretense my tendons and pretense my soft tissue. It's not just tendon that goes into the, the bone itself. Um, in order to effectively, you know, catapult it off the ground ASAP, when I'm trying to, as, as you've already alluded to, Joel, elegantly and gracefully go into and out of a cut, go into and out of a jump, and really uh, demonstrate full excursion and utilization of that soft tissue, there is a, a, a optimum position of muscle stiffness, of muscle length, and pressure within the system to uh, demonstrate and justin was limiting himself for certain activities based on his strategy that he was utilizing and you can see that in his range of motion measurement so he 
he didn't have any internal rotation whatsoever. So he had because because of that position of his asset tab, he had oh god, like negative five to negative ten degrees of IR on the right and zero on the left. And, there, and there's differences uh, relative to the position of his pelvis um, that are creating the asymmetries, but the overall shape of his pelvis wasn't allowing for any internal rotation whatsoever. Uh, oh, uh, sorry, go ahead. The the shape of the pelvis. So this is all. I'm a. I'll preface this. I'm a product of IFAST. So everything that I talk about in this whole model, it comes from Bill and my time spent with them. Um, and so as he as he talks about with shape change, the shape change of the pelvis and the relative motions within the pelvis that are necessary to demonstrate that kind of movement require a nutation of the sacrum and the expansion of the posterior aspect of the pelvic diaphragm in order to create that kind of motion on the table, walking around, in your counter movement jump, etc. And that enables you to actually catch your guts within your pelvis and have the same kind of elastic response inside of the pelvis and inside of the abdomen with your viscera that enables you to also take advantage of that for your athletic performance. So we can talk about utilizing a yielding strategy and utilizing the momentum and energy generated from an Achilles tendon or a patella or anything like that, but you can also talk about it with um, the inside stuff too. And that's also what Justin was lacking based on his presentation as well. Um, with the vertical jump, maybe we can get into that. And I don't know if you have a video that I can throw in the show notes. If not, totally cool. I but I think we all know, anyone who's worked with athletes knows that person who can't seem to dig into the jump very much. And I think from a very binary perspective, I'd be, oh, we just need to get you your, your quad stronger or something. Or you're, you're not strong enough to get your knees for to get down. People would often say, you know, might go there. But uh, with sure. what... Um, you, you're, and I think for me, um, well, I, I, let me ask this and cause I've seen, uh, it, I used to think that someone who would really dig down, well, they just have a good squat or something or a good deep squat. And that's why they dig down far. But as I've talked to, you know, you guys and gotten into more of the, like the Bill Hartman, I fast space and Bill Hartman space. And just those concepts that are starting to resonate in my head a little bit, at least the way I perceived mm-hmm. it and seen athletes is like, I've had a guy who jumped 41 on a just jump mat whose squat to body weight was probably not any better than one five, uh, if that, and he was like, like what you were talking about, Campo, extremely just elastic. Like he is the picture of that person who has eccentric length. Um, also had like long Achilles tendons, but just a very mobile and elastic dude and probably really embodied a lot of these concepts you're talking about, letting the guts descend. And mm-hmm. it definitely wasn't, he wasn't going down. I mean, this guy almost went into a deep seat parallel position to do a ver- his 41 inch vertical. And it wasn't because he had a huge squat. It was all these other pressure dynamics. And um, the thing you were talking about before was the that I thought was interesting. And both of you guys were talking about this is like the that muscle locking up concentrically shortening so that the tendon can go through this cycle. And so, Campo, you're basically saying that in a person who's done too much like heavy lifting and heavy lifting where they're straining too hard is that muscle is so shortened when it pulls that it just doesn't give the tendon any room to operate. And so someone who's a little longer in that muscle has more room to give the tendon like more of that motion. I, I was just trying to make more sure I clarified that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It, it, um, it, it, 
decreases the rate of loading of that tendon. So as you increase the rate of loading of a tendon, it increases its stiffness and it decreases the amount of yielding or excursion that it's capable of going through for any kind of uh, athletic uh, activity. So if I, if I have an increase in muscle activity, that is loading the tendon already before we even get going. And then if I now load it further in any kind of um, athletic activity, whether it's jumping, cutting, whatever, it's decreased in the amount of excursion that it could potentially have and the amount of uh, energy that it could potentially absorb. I think Justin is a good example of someone who would struggle with that based on how he moves, the, the quality of that elastic response as well. The, um, so if you, if you do put a, a video of his initial, uh, or we can put the, the before and afters too, because it's a decent um, contrast, uh, watch him not only go down into like the, that transition phase in his counter movement jump, but also just land and decelerate his body as a whole um, in the initial jump and then after. So in the in the before jump, he just looks like a rock landing uh, and just pr- pretty much like coming to a dead stop very, very, very quickly without any of that nice, slow um, softness to his landing. And then, you know, compared to the the one where uh, how long was that after two months, maybe something like that? OK much more uh, i guess you could say grace or softness to his landing just because he had a little bit more uh there's more rooms for him more room for him to apply the brakes let's say Joel i think there's an important distinction to be made too back to your question earlier about like change of direction sprinting things like that right the quality of this stretch shortening cycle is a lot of times going to have something to do with how much deformation you need in the system, how long a ground contact time we're talking about. So a vertical jump and a cut are a lot different than max velocity Mm -hmm. sprinting, right? And things of that nature, because in max velocity sprinting, ground contact time has to be minimal, right? Fast stretch shorting cycle plyometrics, ground contact time has to be minimal. And we're going to get a different type of stretch shortening cycle than we will with a full counter movement vert or a change of direction. So that's why having the ability to gain a little bit more deformation, a little bit more of a descension, a little bit more of being able to yield during that counter movement jump and throw your guts down right into the pelvic diaphragm and then use that elasticity rebound up, right? It gives you more time. It gives you more space to actually create a greater impulse to then throw your body, all the fluid dynamics and and all of the range of motion that we're talking about, as well as the connective tissue behavior, that yields a greater ability to produce the forces that are then going to throw your body up in the air. And then during a change of direction, especially as velocity going into the change of direction increases and as the, the angle of the cut increases, right? So a sharper angle cut is going to require me to change levels to a greater degree. It's going to require a greater excursion of range of motion. It's going to require more internal rotation and flexion throughout the system. Whereas like a speed cut, you're really not going to see much deformation. You see a much shorter ground contact time. So that's going to be a different strategy than that max velocity sprinting. So at max velocity, like you're going to want greater stiffness in the system because too much give 
and now you've elongated ground contact time and you're a much less effective sprinter. But if you can't give it all and you're trying to make a 180 degree cut at high speeds, you're going to have a problem getting into and out of that cut because you're not going to be able to change levels as effectively as you need to to impart horizontally directed forces to the ground and to make use of that stretch shortening cycle. So you're going to get changes in the center of mass relative to the plant angle. You're going to get a lot of stiffness that that leads to an actually longer ground contact time because you can't absorb and redirect the forces at fast. And at the same time, your plant angle relative to your center mass is going to change. So I think this is where we see a lot of like what Lee Taft would talk about in terms of like shoulder dump or shoulder sway, right? Some of these compensatory strategies up top that we might associate and we might look at a, a young, more like Bambi style athlete and we might see that sway in a person. But we also might see it in somebody who's highly, highly compressed because they can't yield and give way and change levels. And so we start to see these compensatory strategies to try to absorb the forces and redirect them in somebody who's who's very compressed as well. And so that's why I think it's important to, to recognize and distinguish between these different activities and where we might need more stiffness, less yield, right, or more yield in order to deal with the demands of the task. Yeah, that's right. I, just could you guys go quickly give me a 30 second definition of compression i know we've talked about it on the podcast before but if someone's tuning in i should have asked this a long time ago but just quickly in increased pressure i'm compressing so uh, take a water balloon squeeze it you're compressing it you're increasing that pressure and the pressure is generated from the the musculature and that's how you're uh generating all these other changes that we've been discussing your your muscles are like they're just pressure generators pretty much so and that would happen through just a lot of strain oriented lifting generally speaking yeah i mean even just like you know you need that pressure to stay upright it, you're you're trying to constantly generate that otherwise you're you know you're you'd be flimsy and loosey-goosey and so again you're just trying to titrate how much pressure you need to generate in order to participate in whatever task it is and so you you change that strategy based on again specifically what it is you're trying to uh, participate in if you participate in sitting a lot that's going to be a different kind of uh, demonstration as opposed to if you're trying to trap bar deadlift a lot as opposed to if you're walking around a lot as opposed to if you're obese and walking around a lot it changes based on again the the amalgamation of forces that are acting upon on your body and how well you can successfully participate in whatever activity you, you're trying to participate in. So, so I think it is important for people to understand that, that again, compression is not a bad thing. Like you have two yeah. strategies to maintain your upright position against gravity. You can expand and you can compress, right? And every time you put your foot down on the ground during gait, you are going to use a compressive strategy, right? Because that compression throughout the system allows you to gravity and up right and at the same time every time you exhale exhalation is a compressive strategy right it's a systemic compression just like an inhale is a systemic uh, uh expansion right so we can expand and we can compress the question is what how often right and how long is the duration of your compression right where are these compressive elements can you compress and can you expand and the problem is a lot of people can't expand certain areas. They can't compress others. Or in my case, I can't really expand a whole lot of anything, but I'm 
really good at compressing just about everything, right? And so, like, this this element of expansion to compression to expansion is really important to understand. And so it's not that one is better than the other. It's just strategy. And then figuring out what this person needs, as Campo said, to optimize what they're trying to do. Some people need more compression, right? We want to... We want to give them more compression to optimize performance or even to optimize health in some cases, right? And at the same time, that's going to help in terms of force application to the ground. And that's a great thing until it reaches a point at which it starts to seal something else that we need or at which point it starts to take away some sort of element of expansion, velocity, expression, et cetera, that this individual needs for both performance and health. And so, yeah, every time you put your foot on the ground, every time you exhale, every time you you create tension, you are compressing and we need that. But it's about having this balance between being able to express the the compression and the expansion um, that we need in whatever task the individual wants. That's really important. I want to get into the specific intervention you guys did, but really quickly, Mm -hmm. is there a... I'm afraid there's probably not, maybe not a good answer to this, but is there a general way to determine if someone's expand, like they walk in, are they expanded, compressed? Like, is there some ways to kind of figure that out? In a- well, I mean, based on, you know, Bill's model and how I'd kind of assess people, you can take advantage of, okay, what's their general um, shape of their body as well as how are they presenting with certain table tests or certain movements, things like that. So if they're more biased to external rotation. Okay, so so just Justin was talking about breathing. And breathing is a really good example of this, you know, compression during exhale expanding during inhale and so certain uh relative motions within the body should be associated with certain phases of inhalation and exhalation so inhalation you bias yourself towards more external rotation um exhalation you bias yourself more towards internal rotation and then based on your overall structure that biases you to a, a different uh bias towards either internal rotation or exhalation or compression or those shapes of your body versus uh external rotation inhalation expansion etc and if you get if i would direct anyone who wants more info on that to to bill because he's he's the guy that's really been pounding the drum on that for a while and he's that, that that's pretty much where this whole concept came from so got it I almost view it as like, um, just this is my own way my mind goes with that, just for me to understand it easily as I think about mm-hmm. like um, like Paul Cech's breathing squat, where like you you exhale on the way down and all everything internally rotates and you inhale on the way up and everything like externally rotates, like as simple yeah. as that, where the, the breath kind of, and so if I'm breathing out on the way down and everything's internally rotating, that's more, um, I guess, well, actually breathing out, I'm trying to, I might confuse myself, maybe I should just keep it there before I... I go off the rails and I forget what my next question is. <laughs> You're good. Um, I think, I think oh, go that, ahead, Justin. That's a good, a good element, though. It's, it's when you look at a squat, right? It's a simple. It's not simple, but it's, it's an example of this, right? The ability to change levels and to express a full squat is going to be indicative of this ability to go from inhalation to exhalation, back to inhalation, or ER to IR to ER, and then to reverse that process on the way up. So, so a deep squat. And the ability to sit into a you know a butt to butt to heels full squat um, shows you a lot about this person's tendencies and biases, right? Because if if you know again for me, let's use me as the example, right? I can't break parallel, right? I can't even get to parallel when we first started this. 
Um, and, and what you're looking at is this overwhelming, compressive strategy that has literally turned my acetabulum out to the side, right, and not allowed me to express the internal rotation through that middle range of hip flexion that I need to move through that. And then we can't even talk about expressing the counter-mutation and inhalation strategy necessary to get all the way to a bottom of squat, which is, again, an inhalation an expansive strategy, right? In order to sit all the way down, you have to be able to, to descend the pelvic diaphragm and push the guts down in order to get into a deep squat. Because that's where basically you, you have to be able to create expansion in the direction you want to move. If you can't expand, you can't move in that direction. And so that's how we start to piece together like where is where are there expansive strategies available? Where are there compressive strategies that may be limiting us or maybe we need them there to actually create some sort of turn, right? Some people can't turn to one side or the other, and that may be related to the inability to compress certain areas. So, um, it, it, you know, we use the table test, we use global movement screens, we use watching people move as a way of, of getting us a proxy for what this person is capable of moving and where they're not. And then we start to construct the human from there. And I'll say, you know, again, this, this all comes from Bill, um, and, and we, we all owe him a ton for this and, and Campo of all people is, um, kind of a savant when it comes to like looking at these table tests and interpreting, um, and I'm trying to get better at it, which is another reason why I asked him to coach me because like learning from his interpretation of my presentation has been very helpful for me to see things uh, a little bit more clearly as well. All right, um, let's let's get into uh, what you guys did. I, I know we're, we've been going for a little bit, so I'd like to get into mm -hmm. what were the what were the tests? I knew you said you know hamstring tests, obviously back in the day, you know, uh, hip flexion very poor. But what were some of the tests you guys went over, and then what were some of the corrective strategies? So um, this deep squat was a huge uh, test that we were trying to utilize, just because, like Justin was alluding to, the the shape of your pelvis that needs to be created in order to hit parallel requires you to create a little bit more yield and expansion on the lower back side of the pelvis, which he was not able to do. And so that that's also indicative that if I lay him on the table, he's not going to be able to internally rotate well, because in order to internally rotate well, it's the same exact shape that the pelvis needs to create or yeah, to create in order to uh, express that kind of, okay. Um, and as we were alluding to all the way in the beginning of the call, um, the amount of compression that he had all the way down the back side of his pelvis as well as in the front um, was preventing him from doing that. And then he also had a little bit of an orientation of his pelvis as well that needed to be taken care of. So if we have you know compression all the way on the back and the front, and then this slight orientation, the, the name of the game is just helping him reduce some of those uh, some of those characteristics. So for Justin, saying for anyone else, haven't evaluated them or don't know what's going on, not making general recommendations for anyone. For Justin, what we did is a lot of sideline stuff um, on like foam rollers or like having like his girlfriend like sit on the side of his hips and his rib cage to squeeze him from side to side to enable a little bit more expanding to occur back to front. And so the, the reason why I say that quarantine was useful for him, because the amount of time that we needed to dedicate to those kinds of activities was reduced 
because we were already reducing the muscular stiffness and the muscular strategy that was uh, keeping him in that position. So it just made it way, way easier for us to create the, the change in the shape of his pelvis that we were going after. So, so more specifically, as he, he would uh, like lay on his side and just put like a foam roller on the side of his like ilium, like right on the paddle. So if his ilium are turning out into external rotation and retroversion, you just put a, a foam roller on the side of him and have him lay there for a while and get some breaths. And I'll say, hey, Justin, when you lay there, do you feel like a big stretch through your butt cheek? Yeah. Okay, cool. Then we're decreasing some of that muscular stiffness and forcing it to eccentrically orient. Awesome. Let's take some breaths. When you take a deep breath, do you feel that expand in your butt cheek? So that would be your lower pelvic floor. And then do you feel that kind of expand through like your SI and your lower back? Yeah. Okay, cool. Now I know that we're generating a little bit more of an expansion and a yield on that area of his body when he's in that position. Okay, cool. I have a decent idea that a, a favorable change will happen based on how I think he's presenting. Justin, stand up after laying there for five to 10 minutes. Does your squat feel better? Yeah, I get less pinching in my hip. I feel like I can go farther. Okay, awesome. Then we're actually doing what we need to do. And so, all right, that's going to be part of your warm up. Other parts of his warm up were now to try and actively create that for himself. So, just how um, stiffness and muscular stiffness got him to the point that he was and load got him to the point that he was. We need load to get him to the exact other spectrum because we need to generate muscular stiffness in other regions to create a deformation in the soft tissue and to change the shape of his pelvis to allow for more motion. So we did more lifting activities like staggered stance deadlifts, split squats, um, squatting with higher, higher weights or higher loading, but in specific ranges of motion or with specific strategies or specific sensations in mind, still trying to create that expanding on the backside of his body and the backside of his pelvis. Th those were really all things that we were trying to attempt to accomplish. So as long as you have the shape and the behavior in your head as far as what he's already doing, you just find activities that are going to do the exact opposite and decrease that. And then just use your KPI as a indicator of, are you full of it? Did your intervention work or did it not work? And you need to go back to the drawing board and see, okay, what else can we do? It's not like, I'm, I'm not going to know the answer to any kind of intervention. I can have a, a more general idea of how he's presenting based on the, the intervention and my understanding of the human body. And then, you know, okay, select a decent KPI to indicate that. And then just go, go tinker. It's like, okay, let's try this. Did that work? Recheck. Cool. Let's try this. Did that work? Uh, not really. Screw that. I don't want you doing that because it's just making it worse. You know, that, that that's really where the KPIs become valuable to just make sure you're being honest with yourself. And I think that's a that's a huge um, that's a huge part of, you know, how, how you need to structure how you're doing things just to make sure, like, you know, you're keeping yourself honest and you're making sure that what you're saying and validating your interventions with is actually happening if it's not then if you don't change what you're trying to do and are if you're not changing 
in order to accomplish the goal you're trying to accomplish, then you're you're wasting everyone's time on that side. I don't I don't want to wait as much as I give you shit, Justin. I don't want to waste your time. I appreciate that. You're um, one of the one of the cool things though that was that was also different about what what Campo had me doing and what we did, especially in these first couple of months, um, were some of the the drop activities and some of the like almost unwaiting activities. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that was very useful so so think of like a heels elevated kettlebell clean was a staple in my my movement prep um a a uh, front foot elevated goblet split drop um we're now kind of progressed that to like a a contralateral low cable front foot elevated split drop and a lot of these elements um for for me which were cool in the programming i think what they did in addition to any sort of um kind of concept like using velocity to actually create a yielding strategy using some of this this higher speed work to create a yielding strategy in the tissue. It also got me to begin to uh, understand or learn how to move through space with less tension, right? And that was one of the big things that I had to adopt because the first time I did them, uh, you know, I, I sent him videos and he's like, oh my God, get on a FaceTime call. <laughs> <laughs> it was brutal. Yeah. My biggest cue for him was like, hey, don't trap our deadlift this, dude. Just exactly. relax. Exactly. And so, but that's like, that's lit. I was literally doing the best I could with what I had. Like, I wasn't trying to tense my way through it. Um, and I was just trying to like find the positions. But over time, what you begin to figure out or learn is okay, like, what, how much tension do I need to actually achieve this position, right? How much effort do I need? What can I let go of? And that's something that I took away to work with some of my compressed clients as well. Some of my highly compressed, like higher level athletes. It's like, if you're trying to capture this yielding strategy or capture uh, more range of motion or the ability to, to excurse through these, these angles. Um, a lot of people are like max effort bench pressing or max effort trap bar deadlifting everything they do. And so some of these like unweighting and drop activities, you know, it was learning to move fluidly. It was learning to move through space with, with less tension um, and to be able to actually expand. And so like, to, you know, I'm still very much work in progress on this front, but like now when I do those, those cleans or when I do those, those elements, um, there's a lot less effort and I feel like I'm just able to move freely and feel the ground and, and not feel pinchy in my hips and not feel like at the bottom of the, the, the kettlebell clean, like my shoulders are in my ears and my whole upper body is just like tensing up entirely. So I think that was really cool and it was very helpful. And it's something that I've taken away and included um, in some of my, you know, like movement days that I like to do on, on off days and things that I've given to um, some of my athletes who I know also can benefit from them. that was really important. Um, and the other thing I learned, which I think is a really valuable takeaway for a lot of the coaches on here who maybe are working with, you know, highly restricted or highly compressed athletes or who they themselves are you know trying to make a change. But they're, you know, classic meatheads who love the weight room. And, and that's who I was. I think one of the things that they can understand and appreciate is you can't do what you've always done and expect something to change. And so like you, you probably can't. Right. And, and some people can get away with it. Sure. I'll, I'll say that. But at the same time, for a long time, that's what I try to do. It's like, Oh, I'm going to do a few breaths in 90, 90. And then I'm going to go do, you know, a bunch of heavy trap bar lifting four days a week. And I'm going to go bench press four days a week. And on my off days, I'm going to do a lot of really hard, high intensity interval work. And it's like, you can't expect that you're actually going to create change when most of your bias in your training 
is to that highly compressive, high force, low velocity work. And then you're trying to offset it. It's like, you know, it's like trying to piss on a forest fire. Like it's <laughs> not going to work. And so that's part of what I needed to do. Like I needed to let go of some of these emotional attachments in some ways to always needing to try to lift heavier, train harder, redline it a little bit more um, in order to actually start to make a measurable change in my movement and the way I felt. And so um, there are always secondary consequences to everything you do. And and working with Campo, like I've had to be okay taking my hands off of the programming, not doing certain things that I've always done, right? But understanding that that's what I need to accomplish my goal and kind of looking at it as a, a, a new chapter in, in my training and in, in my health and my movement. Um, and so that was a, a really good experience for me to have to. Uh, quickly, tell me about uh, so some of these exercises. And actually, I you may have mentioned this on your like Facebook post about it. I don't. I think you may have mentioned it just now. But this is what I was thinking about as you guys are talking about these things. And that's um, mm-hmm. like oscillating reps, like mid range or deeper range oscillating work. Because to me, it's like I've loved oscillating like split squats for sprinters for a long time. And you know, there's a lot of like, oh, it's just contracting, and relaxing the muscle. It's like sure on the binary level. But as we're talking more and more, I, I start to understand there's a little bit more to it. But well, tell me a couple things. One, I'll tell you about like the kettlebell clean with the heels elevated. Like, is that are you like deep catching that to learn to yield? And 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 then, so could we call this just like yielding with feedback? If I'm just trying to be super reductionist, like yielding with sensory feedback, learning to do that is like the umbrella of sorts. Or, I mean, so the the sensory feedback, insofar as like, okay, that's the the feeling you need to get. Uh, just to learn how to do it. And that's kind of where some of his warm up stuff comes in. It's like, yeah, we're structurally trying to change the shape of his pelvis, but also it's like, hey, these are sensations that I'd like you to be accustomed with so that when we do some of our higher level stuff, you already have a, 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 a physical language for that kind of uh, sensation, right? Um, and then with the kettlebell clean, so it's a, it's a heels elevated. Um, which allows him to get depth that he otherwise can't and achieve the shape of the pelvis that he otherwise can't. Um, the, it's a goblet, so he's enabling his lower, or excuse me, his upper body to stay relaxed when he's catching the weight. Otherwise, you know, a big cue I use with him is let the weight win. So let the, the weight kind of relax your arms and pull your arms down. So that's decreasing some of the compression happening within his thorax as well. And then as he drops down, what you have is movement of the guts as well, which enables the the yielding to actually occur inside of your body. So as he he comes up, guts come up, and then as his body drops down, there's a little bit of a delay where his body's moving a little bit faster than his guts. And then when he hits the landing, his body stops, but then his guts pretty much hit like the trampoline of his pelvic floor that we're trying to create with the heels elevated squat position, which is enabling that, that shape change of his pelvis to take place. So that that little catch, uh, guts are delayed and they come down and they drop into it. In my mind is what I'm trying to create when I'm trying to generate that yielding strategy for him when we're doing it. And then we're kind of exposing him to some of those like oscillatory uh, activities like you were describing as well, where it's like, okay, he, so what was it, a farmer hold, right, Justin? Yeah, so he, he, so he, he was holding like, I don't know, what were you doing, 25, 30 pounds? Like, it was like yellow kettlebells, like 35 pounds. Okay. Uh, you didn't go like 60 like you wanted to. <laughs> so um, all he's doing is he's heels elevated again to enable him to get depth. 
he's a little bit higher than parallel to start. He drops the weights and he tries to chase them down to the bottom. So he gets below parallel so that and then he catches it and that forces that yielding activity to occur. And then he comes back up, which now it's even like exposing him to a little bit of that overcoming activity, but from a more yielded position of his soft tissue. Now it's enabling more of that elastic response that we want out of you know something like his vertical jump or his uh, change of direction. So we're getting the shape change of the pelvis. That's more appropriate for some of the change of direction stuff so we can get into and out of his cut a little bit more effectively. We're getting the shape change that's enabling a little bit more of that yielding response to enable his elastic tissue to generate a little bit more uh, or absorb a little bit more energy and be more effectively utilized. And the shape of the pelvis is also enabling us to uh, capture those guts and utilize that momentum more effectively as well. So that there's there's a ton of stuff going on in there, but that's pretty much what the the whole idea behind some of those activities were. And then, you know, a lot of the other interventions, just like, okay, let's just capitalize all of those or some of those um, adaptations as far as like, okay, here we're trying to change the shape of your pelvis. Here we're generating a little bit more of a yielding you know it's so i kind of see it as like a pie chart there's all these different adaptations that we're trying to create and then each activity should um carry a different percentage for each one of those adaptations within the pie chart and then like i said we check and remeasure and see is it creating the change that we want if not scrap it get it out of there if so then yeah let's keep going with that i like it so, yeah and what's, what's cool about that and i would there's one like that's that's an important concept right so campo wrote a program we execute the program or i execute the program send video right and then he'll like literally text me back he'd be like i need you to do this in that exercise and i'm like yeah i can't do that and he's like i don't like this exercise anymore so like we scrap it right we we kind of had that this week it was like we had a, a short-seated jump <laughs> three weeks now and i just i just still sucked it. yeah i'm terrible <laughs> As an athlete and as the as the athlete, like this, you know, obviously we have our own individual relationship because we've known each other a while. Um, but there has to be that back and forth between coach and athlete, and both the coach and the athlete have to be able to communicate effectively. So like I have to be able to send him the video and have him say, Hey man, like that's just not it, right? It's just not working. Like that's not what we need. And I gotta be okay with that. And I I've learned to say, Hey, listen, like it's just part of the process. I'm doing my best, but maybe. Maybe I need to try something else in terms of a, a cue or a thought process. Maybe I need to give it more time, or maybe it's just not for me right now, and that's okay. Like I'll, I'll, we'll go back to that maybe eventually. So that's important. Um, the concept that we talked about the first time we got on a call to do the programming was with my history and my training background. You may need some load. You may need some velocity to actually create the shape change and create the give way in the tissue that we've been talking about. So like, sure, a lot of the, you know, the, we still have breathing interventions. We still have a lot going into my warmup, but we've used load to try to recapture some of the strategies we need. And so there's a, a kind of a finite spot. Like he was joking, you know, you didn't use 60s, right? But I tried, <laughs> right? And the 20s weren't enough because I couldn't achieve the depth and I couldn't let go of my shoulders with 20s. I needed a little bit more load to create this yielding strategy. So there's a sweet spot. It's like too much weight and I'm going to squeeze the hell out of it and I'm going to go right to my strategy. Too little weight and it doesn't actually force this change. And so 
the to wrap up that last exercise, I really like that one. The heels elevated farmers hold OI because at first, again, I was squeezing like crazy. I was pushing back up. I wasn't getting it. Through practice, though, I learned to let the weight pull me down. I learned to let it depress my shoulders. I learned to find my heels and stay more vertical and push my knees forward. And then the key was I was thinking about dropping straight down in a phone booth and just trying to, as Campo said, beat the weight to the bottom. So instead of lifting the weight and then trying to throw it down, which I was doing initially, it was like, I'm just going to let go and try to get to the bottom faster than these weights. And then the, the rebound, the overcoming action was effort, right? Like it took no energy for me to bounce back out of it. What it took was learning to, to give way, to let go, to rebound. And so I really liked those activities. And, and that's why some of that uh, oscillatory stuff for me, I think, is, is very useful because it forced me to literally learn a new strategy. But we were very purposeful in the application yes. of that, right? It wasn't just like, all right, you're going to oscillate up and down as fast as you can. It was, here's the intent. Here's the focus. Let's use this to help reinforce our, our overall intent. Yeah, I feel like strength and conditioning for you know decades has been teaching people basically to compress. And you, we talk about the importance of yielding, but I love how specific like you guys are treating the yielding portion of this program. Um, do you have that uh, video of the farmer's walk? Oh, I, I'd be interested to post that too. Um, I, yeah, uh, Justin, Justin should probably have a question. Yeah, it's, a, it's basically a heels elevated like uh, half squat position with, with a, a kettlebell in each hand. And it's a release, drop, catch, and pop up. And I'll send you the video of it for sure. I got a couple good ones. Yeah, I just love that act of, of learning learning to yield. Like that's some stuff I've been even working on just even in the context of just sprint and plyometric drills. Like just because I think I just my whole, even in that world, has just been, you know, a very like stomp, stiff, max, everything. And well, even I in that. I feel it now. Like, yeah. and, I, and, I, and that's why it's such a learning experience. Because even now, if I'm doing something like, let's say, a light lateral split squat, right? But my foot's in contact with the ground the whole time. And I'm trying to do that lateral split squat. Sometimes I will literally catch myself like I'm pushing back mm -hmm. up as I'm trying to go down, right? <laughs> and that's why some of the unweighting and drop stuff has been useful for me because you learn to let go, right? You don't have ground contact. You don't have the load in your hands the whole time. And so you learn to expand and move through space. But when my foot's in contact with the ground and I have a load in my hands, my natural bias is I'm pushing mm -hmm. back up, even as I'm lowering. And I think that's where people, um, they think of it as like, you know, if I'm lowering a bar in a bench press, like that's the eccentric, right? That's the lengthening phase. Well, if you're lifting a heavy weight, you're not lengthening your muscular tissue. You're not expanding. You're fighting that thing mm -hmm. the entire way. And so that's what you learn to do. You learn to fight heavy loads throughout and to restrict your movement options. Because if you start moving a lot under that load, you don't make the lift, right? And you get really good at tightening up, compressing, and making sure that that bar can't break you. And so now what I'm trying to do is relearn how to move more fluidly through space. Um, and it's helped a lot. Like, again, you know, I'm a, I'm a relatively athletic guy, but, but my cuts feel so much better. Like, I don't have any fear or trepidation. Like, I feel like I can get into an aggressive, sharp change of direction and, and not be worried that, A, like, something's going to hurt and my knee's going to give out, or I'm going to get stuck in the ground, which is exactly right. what I felt before this. Yeah. And to... To counterbalance his whole point about like, okay, learning to yield and things like that. There's there's plenty of people out there who need to learn the exact opposite side of the spectrum as well. I'm working with a pitcher. He's a good example where he's a lefty pitcher. His right foot stays supinated like to a, to a ridiculous degree. And that's a, 
that's his plant foot when he is uh, pitching. So I'm literally doing uh, right now, right before we go into season, we're doing overcoming static holds with his right foot forward in a split squat to literally teach him like, hey, that's the force you need to generate. And that's the, the action we need to get as soon as that front foot hits the ground. And that's what's going to enable you to tr- take uh, advantage of your stretch shortening cycle. But now the stretch shortening cycle is happening at his left arm as opposed to his lower body. So. Yeah. So, it makes yeah. me, yeah, I think that's a good point too. It makes me think of um, Alex Natera, who's been on the show, has like a similar thing for sprinters. You're in like mid stance and you're pressing into a bar as on the force plate in the bottom as hard as you can to, you know, generate that very peak little, and that has helped people top end. And so it's this, this oh, yeah. interplay and there's specificity, right? Like global stiffness, hex bar deadlift, probably not good for, you know, sprinting fast on some level, but then that very specific element when you're actually in the bar and have that going on. Like, okay, now we're, we're moving. So I'm sure we could talk about this forever, but um, man, I know sure. we're, we're kind of, we're, this is a bit of a long, but incredibly informative show. And I really appreciate both you guys. Do you have any, uh, any closing comments or anything um, that uh, you meant to chat about or any closing comment before we get out of here for the day or? No, just, you know, close, closing thoughts to sum up the, the whole conversation is just, you know, have, a, have an idea of how to identify what some people's deficits are, um, have a decent model or representation to, to perform that for yourself, and then just make sure that you're tracking appropriately the changes that you're, you think you're trying to make. That's all. And I think for me, it's, it's going back to the idea of just um, understanding what the individual's goals are, what they need, and then appreciating the secondary consequences of the things that you do, right? And so understanding that like there are no free lunches, and as Campo said, there are no general adaptations. Everything is specific. And so some people do need that greater compressive strategy. Some people do need to be able to create greater force. And so like, X-bar deadlift is a great option for them. And overcoming isometric is a great option for them. Some people, that is going to directly interfere with what they need to improve for their specific goals in whatever activities they want to do. And so you know, sometimes you have to take some of that away from them and do something different, right? Like what we have done to allow that person to create time. So I'd encourage anybody who's kind of in that place where they're, you know, they're still doing things they've done for a long time, wanting to make a change, but they just haven't been able to let go of it. Like get a coach, get somebody else to, to put their eyes on you and, and kind of go with things from an unbiased perspective. Um, or just say, Hey, listen, I, I it's, We've, you know, I love doing these things, but if I want to make a change in how I move and how I feel, sometimes you actually have to step away from those things, maybe for a while and maybe for a long time, if you actually want to make it stick. Um, so that, I think that's important. And that plus just appreciating what the demands are of aggressive cuts, of changes of direction, of a vertical jump, of a sprint, what is required for doing those things efficiently, effectively, and safely. Um, that is That has been really a cool part of the learning process. Um, and now putting those together with you know, Bill's model and, and the things that I know about multi-directional speed has helped not only me, but but also the athletes that I work with in a big way. So, but uh, thanks again for having us on, man. This is, this was yeah. a lot. Of- thanks, All right. Joel. All right. Thank Appreciate you guys. It. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in for the show. We appreciate you all, and we'll see you again next week. Have a good one.